A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another day and another dollar for all those naysayers and doom mongers desperate to find something negative to complain about in the midst of the worst health crisis the world has seen this century. As the government attempts to get the country back to work and to some semblance of normality, the stooges continue to stand in the way. And it's no surprise where they come from. Rail unions who are threatening to shut down transport networks to stop people travelling. Teaching unions who are saying their members are too scared to go back to school. Jeremy Corbyn who is urging people not to go back to their jobs, and Keir Starmer, who is parroting a rather flimsy Sky News report about care homes and deaths from COVID-19. All of these people are enemies of the recovery. They are willfully drumming up fear and concern. They ought to be ashamed of themselves, but of course, they're not, are they? Uh, we can throw the Guardian in there for good measure, by the way. Three headlines on the front page this morning. Uh, ministers face new claims of failing to prepare care homes for outbreak. Lockdown will lead to significant recession, and commuters get packed to work after lockdown. All terribly predictable, all terribly negative, and all terribly of no use at all. No wonder they are selling less than 60,000 papers a day and our figures have gone up by 84% year on year. You know why? Because people like positivity. People like hope. People don't like despair. People like to have something to live for rather than something to die for, for God's sake. Today we'll be examining just why the media is so enamoured with this Max Headroom lookalike who is currently masquerading as the leader of the Labour Party. It is as if Sir Keir Stoner has somehow hypnotised everybody and made everybody believe that he isn't somehow the most boring, useless and uncharismatic leader in the history of politics. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be finding out how easy it is to get one of the new antibody tests and what a difference that will make to our ability to get more and more people out of their homes and back to the workplace. You know the number 0344 499 1000. As ever, we want to hear from you about what's going on out there, about what you're seeing, about what you're hearing, about whether you are going back to work, whether you're able to go back to work, whether you can't go back to work. We want to know. Also, we'll be learning all about phobias in our homeschooling section today and we'll find out as well why the probation service is worried about the way their business is being run. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Well, let me first of all say a massive warm welcome to all of you new listeners who have come over to see us and visit us and stayed with us because our growth, I can tell you, I'm so happy about it, the growth of this radio station and of this show, 84% up year on year. We are basically doubling our audience every single year. So before you start saying, well, you're still a long way away from some of your rivals. Well, yes, we are at the moment, but we're coming after you and we will get there and we will be taking you over. And the other good news for me is that the BBC overall generally is down, commercial radio generally is up. So we're coming for the BBC as well. Let's talk to Mark Wallace, Executive Editor of Conservative Home, on this auspicious morning. Mark, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Congratulations on being yes. the fastest growing independent republic on the planet. Well, thank government. you very much indeed. Now, can you explain to me, please, because I'm, I'm really at a loss around here, uh, why so many people in the media keep telling me how brilliant Keir Starmer is, how he's taking the Prime Minister to task, how he is forensically examining everything that is said and is somehow, you know, laying it all out there for everybody to see. I find him to be boring, I find him to be useless, and I find him to be less than illuminating on almost any subject. 
Well, I think there are two things that are happening, really. The first is a bit of wishful thinking. You know, yeah. We can think back to when we were told, um, we've been told all sorts of different things in the last year or so. We were told you know, Rory Stewart was going to be taking over as the next Prime Minister of the, uh, 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 leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of the UK. That didn't really happen. We were told a second referendum was definitely going to romp home. Well, that, that didn't really happen. Yeah. We were told that uh, the UK was going to fail to leave the EU at all. Well, that, that didn't really happen. We were told Boris was going to flop at the ballot box. That didn't really happen. <laughs> we were told the general election campaign was, oh, it's classic Dom. He doesn't know what he's doing. Well, that, that, that didn't quite turn out as expected. So I'm afraid there, are, there is some degree of wishful thinking happening. The other thing, frankly, that's happening is I think some people are getting a, um, are, are suffering from a little bit of memory loss. You know, somebody described, uh, I think quite fairly to me recently, um, somebody quite labour-minded described uh, Keir Starmer as Ed Miliband, but less exciting, which <laughs> is, a, is a pretty fair description. I think that's absolutely absolutely true. But I mean, but I mean, the, the Jeremy Corbyn experience has made people forget that actually what Keir Starmer is doing, these are meant to be the basic elements of being an opposition leader, being able to string a sentence together, not being friends with extremists. But instead, Corbyn's left people grateful for that, not be, for, for that stuff. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, what you've just described is a litany of errors by anybody in any other job which would lead to their dismissal. So basically, all of these predictions that were made by various commentators and the commentary act, if you want to call it that, they got everything wrong. I mean, nothing did they get right. Indeed. And, you know, all of us who talk about these things uh, make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes people assess things uh, wrongly. And, and but the distinction is what you've got to do is you've got to try and own up to your mistakes. I can think, for example, when Theresa May's deal was properly on the rocks, when it was coming up for what was going to be its final vote, I was generally concerned that we were going to, that, that she'd mismanaged it so badly, the choice was going to be a bad deal that we'd have to correct later, or no mm. Brexit. And, right. Um, you know, I, I made a mistake. I was wrong in that, but I thought actually it was probably necessary for them to put through her deal and then fight to get out of that bad deal afterwards. Mercifully, I said at the time, if I'm if I'm wrong, I'll be delighted, and I am delighted that I was wrong, and we got we got a proper Brexit instead. But a lot of people seem to be able to shrug off the things they got wrong yesterday and move on immediately to saying, well, uh, I've got a new confident prediction about tomorrow without yeah. mentioning it. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because I actually took the time yesterday to go back to 2017 when Jeremy Corbyn was at his kind of height of popularity when he was going to Glastonbury and they were all singing his name. And the, some, some of the pieces written back then by the likes of Owen Jones and others in, in the Grawniad uh, were basically the same as the, some of the pieces that have been now written about Keir Starmer. We finally found the man. We finally found the guy that's going to beat the Tories. We finally found, you know, our hero for the, few, uh, for the future and all of this. And it's almost word for word the same. Yeah, I think part of the secret there is if you go back a little further in the archives, you'll find Owen Jones' articles early on in Jeremy Corbyn's leadership that were quite fairly, quite reasonably saying, actually, I'm really worried that this guy's not up to it. He's a bit of a liability. But then he turned out to be wildly popular and uh, somebody had to do a bit of a reverse ferret. Yes, but it's a bit like the old Liberals, isn't it? The Lib Dems, they get carried away with themselves when they suddenly find themselves with a little bit of an echo chamber and let lots of people uh, sort of cheering for the same guy from the same hymn sheet. You know, I mean, just, just look back at what happened to the Lib Dems in the last election, you know, when they suddenly thought, oh, we could actually take over here. The fact that, you know, the reason they doubled their numbers in the in Parliament was purely because people had defected to them rather than had won actual elections as Lib Dems. Uh, and suddenly, you know, uh, they thought, oh, we could be the next government. And of course, yeah. as ever, they got that completely utterly wrong. Yeah, and it's, it's an important question, I think, of how you manage your, your psychology. You know, the, the Conservative Party's psychology is not, is not always completely in balance. Mm. I think William, William Hague once said the Conservative Party has two modes, which are overconfidence and panic. Yeah. Um, or, or, but, but the important thing is that the Conservative Party, when it loses, has learned the hard way to start wondering why, what it got wrong, what it did wrong in order to lead it to lose. Too much of the left in this country has got used to the idea that if they lose, that means it's a conspiracy, the media stacks against them, voters are too stupid to understand how wonderful they are, it's, you know, it, it's, it's people without money being conned by the rich to vote for the rich a bit more. Without taking the honest analysis of why is it that people don't just agree with messiahs like Jeremy Corbyn, right. then they're never really going to find out. No, exactly right. And I mean, as ever with the Tory party, the enemy is actually within, isn't it? Because that's what Boris Johnson probably has to fear the most. Not really Keir Starmer, certainly not uh, Ed Davey, and certainly not Nicola Sturgeon, and certainly not that bloke in Wales, whatever his name is, who can't remember what the rules are. The bottom line is, is that inside the party, people like Jeremy Hunt and possibly others in the 1922 committee are still gunning for the leader. Well, I think the, the two things uh, that ought to be the, the Boris Johnson has to be alive to. The first is that while while um, Keir Starmer is incredibly boring, 
he is actually asking very vaguely coherent questions. Jeremy Corbyn used to do this thing where he used to ask questions that weren't actually a question. He'd right. sit down and Boris Johnson or Theresa May would say, you've, you've forgotten to ask a question. Yeah. Um, that, I think there are some questions being asked now. The government's got to make sure it's not, it doesn't assume it's facing Corbyn as he has answers to them. Um, but yes, it's fair to say that I think there's been a bit of a wobble in, within the Conservative Party in the last few days. We published yesterday on Conservative Home some roundup of some of the concerns being expressed to us by some backbench Conservative MPs who, under this incredibly intense um, situation, a global, once a century global pandemic, yeah. um, who are having a bit of a wobble in the last few days about the government's comms performance in, in, in particular. So he's got to do an awful lot, Boris Johnson, to make sure that his own troops and his own benches stay the course, that they retain confidence, that they stay calm. And, um, and also, of course, you're used to having this idea, just like in any workplace, uh, people are quite tribal. People get together, they see each other, they chat, they, you can talk to them face-to-face about what you're doing. With social distancing, with the lockdown still, still continuing, it's hard to do that. You can't get the whole Conservative Parliamentary Party together in one room and give them a rousing speech and get them banging the table. So there's other ways they've got to try and keep people motivated to keep them rather. Yeah, and maybe I wonder whether Boris needs to be slightly better briefed as well, because I don't know whether uh, you saw a picture that was circulating on Twitter yesterday after Keir Starmer was moaning and groaning on about what seemed to be basically uh, his argument based upon a Sky News report about, you know, care homes. And the numbers are still very woolly. You know, he's making accusations which are probably broadly correct but but individually incorrect. And so Boris doesn't really have an answer for all of that, and he should have. But equally, at the same time as he is alleging that the Conservative Party was giving this advice that, you know, there was no risk in care homes and there was no need to worry about the spread of COVID-19 in care homes, he was sitting in a room full of people right next to other people because nobody was social distancing back then. And if they could even just make those kinds of points, it would rebut an awful lot of what Star was going on about. Yeah, I think we have this situation in the UK, and you see this in, in some other crises in the past, actually, where the, the centralisation of our state and the way in which Downing Street has so much power over things, but it's actually still quite a small operation. It is possible for Downing Street teams to get thrown out of kilter and off balance by something, particularly by a sustained ongoing crisis in which, for example, the Prime Minister ends up in intensive care. And I think you do need to make sure that the team around the Prime Minister, who have a million and one things to think about, do need to make sure there's still people on that in terms of the briefing, in terms of PMQs. Remember, Boris Johnson's experience of Prime Minister's questions before Keir Starmer was um, was, was largely disrupted by various different arguments over whether Parliament will be sitting or not yes. in the general election. And, and in between those, Jeremy Corbyn was kind of um, wandering around uh, a little bit confusedly in the middle. So the fact is that while Keir Starmer, as I was saying earlier, I don't think is an amazing opposition leader, he is actually doing some opposing and some scrutiny. And it's important, therefore, the Prime Minister is properly briefed and has the right answers. No, sure. But given the fact that most of the media now is about as trustworthy as a pirate coming out of a, a, a cave in Somerset somewhere, you know, and I've no disrespect to Somerset, but, I mean, nobody trusts the media anymore in this country. I mean, can they have an effect on Boris Johnson by sort of continuing to lord, to lionise Starmer and to continue to make him out to be some kind of new messiah of politics? I think it does have an effect to a certain extent. It's one reason I think why Keir Starmer ended up winning the Labour leadership, combined with um, you know, Re- Rebecca Long Bailey promising to continue. The, What's um, happened to her, by the way? I haven't heard from her for ages. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. She's um, she's gone uh, gone missing. She's gone very quiet. You know, a missing list. <laughs> Maybe just send out a search party. If I was Keir Starmer, I'd be wondering a little bit about what momentum and so on are actually up to at the moment. Right, um, but but. You know, I think it does have some effects, partially because people don't know Keir Starmer yet. If people know about him, they might know about the second referendum mm. that he pushed on to Labour as a policy. They might be for that or against this. They might know that he's... Um, they might be able to vaguely recognise him. But this whole crisis has come at a time when he would otherwise be trying to get his name out there and established yeah. and get people to see him. Um, the fact is, you don't even get things like PMQs really covered in the, to the same extent on the major bulletin right. at the moment. And so... I think what people hear about Keir Starmer being largely second-hand will have some influence. But I suspect what's going to happen is people, a lot of people will hold off their judgment until they get to see him properly. Yes, I guess so. Because there was this ludicrous uh, development yesterday where YouGov did a poll of a very small number of people, 1,600 or so, uh, in which it said that Starmer uh, was uh, thought to be doing an OK job by 40% of people. They put it up against Boris Johnson, who was 50, 57% in the same category. Uh, but they then sort of turned it into the fact that he was somehow more popular because he was 
on the least popular front, uh, a smaller number than Boris Johnson was. And it was a completely spun story, which the uh, Evening Standard published. And it was then uh, also forgotten that the largest number of people who were asked about Pierce Starmer just said they didn't know. And that was 66%. But, I mean, the, the willful manipulation of those kinds of stats, to me, is, is, is nothing short of criminal. Some of this goes back to the wishful thinking uh, thing I was talking about earlier, yeah. is that when you're looking at polling, I wrote something in my iPaper column last week, warning, actually warning Conservatives to be wary of the polling, and the Tories technically have a big lead, but I just don't think you can really uh, read a lot into polls that take place in the middle of a crisis. You know, mm. Back to all those polls that showed huge support for uh, Winston Churchill in the middle of the Second World War, and he promptly lost the general election straight after it. So you know, the, the, the reasons to be wary of that generally... Um, and then, yeah, when you're talking about net approval ratings, the fact is that what matters in elections is who votes for somebody. Exactly. And, that, uh, and so when people are saying, I think Keir Starmer's doing a good job, you know, it's possible to think he's doing a good job of being leader of the opposition in the middle of a crisis, or a better job than Jeremy Corbyn, which, uh, frank, frankly, a, a slightly subtle donkey could probably achieve. <laughs> you need to distinguish that from thinking, I would like him to be Prime Minister in the future. That's a different question. People, when they come to elections, they vote a little bit on what's happened, and they vote a lot on what they think is going to happen next. Yes, exactly right. So as far as the next sort of few days and weeks go, it's got, it's, it's got to be the case that Boris Johnson and his government will be, will be sort of tested to a large extent and judged on how we get the economy back, right? That's going to be part of it, and I think that's, that's very closely bound up with the question of exactly how you start relaxing lockdown, which which itself links into testing um, and tracing and tracking people who are currently ill with the virus, and also the question of this, this potentially good news about antibody tests uh, coming, on to, uh, coming on stream that allow people to find out if they have had the virus and therefore whether it might be a little bit safer for them to be able to do various um, essential jobs. Mm. So those, those two things you can't really separate out the two, and I think Let's be honest, it's been a bumpy few days for the government in terms of the communications of uh, how the next phase of lockdown goes. I think it's made more difficult um, by quite a challenging media environment, like we've talked about. But the fact is that politicians have to deal with things as they are. And where the government's had some difficulties, it needs to get back on the front foot in terms of communicating and encouraging and persuading people about exactly how this is going to work. It's right. not going to be easy because it's a pandemic. It's going to be complicated, but um, not um, not every radio presenter wants to hear that. Uh, no, indeed. And what would you say, uh, Mark, in your estimation, uh, would be something that they should not do in terms of their policy and their strategy uh, and their communications um, techniques, as it were? I think it would be a mistake to get hung up on this idea of a slogan, for example. You know, the, the Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives was a vastly, vastly successful slogan. It was very, very effective. It's far more effective, actually, if you look at the numbers, for example, of uh, people keeping their kids off school or staying home or not travelling, than the, even the government's own scientists and modellers expected. Um, that's great. So it was really useful at the time. I think part of what we've seen in the last few days is it's a kind of bit of a mess, is this idea that there must be a new slogan, and the new slogan yeah. must carry the, the weight of a policy. Well, actually, you don't always need a one, two, three-part slogan for yes. everything. The fact is that as things become more complicated, as things vary from sector to sector, I suspect soon we might see rules on lockdown varying from place to place or region right. to region. You know, things like the R numbers seem to vary a lot between different parts of the country. Yeah. Um, that's going to get harder and harder to sum up in some slogan. And people have already shown that if you give them a slogan that's a bit fudged, then they'll, they'll go mildly. <laughs> yes, it's just... It's just a what, what, if, what if I bump into my auntie's cousin and there's a why? I know. I know. I mean, I couldn't believe some of the questions that were being asked, but, I mean, I suppose you're right, because if, for example, they were to say, we're moving into a new phase, phase three, and so we need a new slogan, somebody will say, uh, if they're bright enough, oh, so we don't have to stay alert anymore then. Does that mean we stop being alert? You know, and it will exactly. just sort of lead to more problems. We'll stop pretending not to understand what the word alert means. But, <laughs> the, but the, the fact is that actually I think it would be a mistake to stay hung up on the idea of a slogan. Yes. People have these things at the right time, um, but people have spent a lot. People have spent a long time adjusting locked indoors during lockdown, thinking about all this. People do have the, the capacity and the competence to actually read and understand mm. the rules. And um, you, know, you can't always sum up everything in a new slogan. You know, yeah, otherwise, you're going to end up with a 57-line slogan. It's going to be a lot. No, quite. I think you're absolutely right. Mark Wallace, thank you very much indeed, Executive Editor of Conservative Home. Uh, I'm told, by the way, Rebecca Long-Bailey did make some kind of appearance in Parliament the other day in some kind of education debate. I'm sorry, that one must have passed me by. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let's say a very good morning to Dr. Barrett at Pancania. We haven't spoken to him for a while. Barrett, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Yes, good morning to you. You've been a very busy man since we first spoke to you many, many months ago, well, many weeks ago, certainly, but um, I, hope you're, yes. I hope you're bearing up under the strain. I am. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Excellent. Now, uh, interesting times that we've uh, finally, uh, it looks as though, got the go-ahead for this antibody test. How important would you say this development is? Well, the antibody test, as you were saying, will tell us if you've had the infection. Right. That's the good bit. Uh, the other bit that we are not sure about is how long does this immunity last? Right. That is uncertain with coronavirus infection. And as far as people's, um, I guess, well-being is concerned, would there be any point in having this test if you didn't have any symptoms? I don't see the point, to be truthful, but I can also see many other people who think differently, which is um, I want to check out just in case, I would like to know because I worry a lot. So there's a lot of gray area of people saying, I just want some assurance. I can see that uh, coming. But um, uh, we need to be careful because you just don't do tests willy-nilly and use up national health resources just right. because you feel anxious about it. No, exactly right. And also, I suppose, it depends on how easily accessible this test is. By complete chance, um, because I happen to have visited a, a clinic a couple of, uh, I, I suppose, a few months ago now for a, a problem I had with one of my nails. Um, I'm now on their uh, mailing list. They sent me a, an email this morning saying that this test was now available to me if I wanted to pay them £99. Is it going to be made available to anyone on the NHS? Anyone who needs it will get it. Right. Uh, and Because the NHS works on basis of if you need it, you will have it. So, uh, And it's best to leave it like that. Anybody who needs it should get it. Right, so what's the criteria for getting one then? I don't know. Uh, it has only just been released. And I, I would, I, if I had to work it out, I would say if I was in a doubt situation whereby there are key workers we, for whom we are not sure whether they have got antibodies or not from mm. prior infection, I would, I, would, I would sort of, sort of sort them out first yes. as a priority to have the test. Yes. I mean, for example... Would it be something that you would give to... And I'm not asking you to make policy here. I'm just really asking for a recommendation. Would it be something, for example, that you would give to people on the front line in the NHS, like doctors and nurses, effectively? Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that, that's the point I was going to make, which is they are essential key workers, and many of them have been at home and we have been unsure with not testing. Have they got a cold? Have they got flu? Right. Have they got coronavirus? So this test would at least be able to tell us Yes, you've had it, and yes, you've got evidence of antibodies. Right, and then that would mean, I, I assume, that they could go back to work. Yes, indeed. Right. And, but, but, but do remember, these tests can only be applied with accuracy about 20, 21 days after the infection. Yes. So that's when the antibody levels are at their peak, and we would be able to detect it with accuracy. Right. So, for example, if somebody had thought they had coronavirus back in January and they took a test mm -hmm. now, uh, if they had had it, would it show up that they had had it? That is the point. You know, January was a long time ago, and we would test them and see if uh, there, there is presence of antibodies. That's exactly the usefulness of this test. But, as I say, we don't know how long this immunity lasts. Right. That we have to be careful about and be aware of all the time. Yes, of course. Because the other problem, I suppose, is that if you do take this test and it shows that it's negative, for example, uh, i.e. you have not had it and you don't have the antibodies, all that means is that you haven't had it up to, what, 21 days ago? It shows that um, either you've taken the test too early 
or that you've not had the infection. Hmm. Those are the two things. Because I hear that the test is pretty specific and sensitive. Those are technical terms, but suffice to say for our listeners that it's a pretty accurate test. So that then, then if you test negative, it means one of two things. You've never had the infection right. or you've tested too early. Right. So, I mean, as far as the um, sort of, I guess, length of time that the antibodies remain in your system, what do we know about that? We don't know. This is the great unknown. And we, you know, of course, it only emerged in December, the coronavirus, COVID-19. So we don't know. And this is the great unknown. In other words, do you remain immune for three months, six months, nine months? We don't know. Mm. That's tricky, isn't it? Because it also means that of the two tests that you can get, which is the antibody test, which we're talking about today, and the other test, which actually just tests to see whether you are actively uh, carrying the disease, I suppose. Well, well, these would both be available now, presumably, at these testing centres. But again, um, if, it, if it's all negative, it just means that you might get it tomorrow, effectively. Correct, correct. So, yes, <laughs> you, you, you summed it up right. Um, whilst there is positivity... Uh, it doesn't really get us completely out of the woods, so mm. to speak. Right. So um, I guess in one sense it's a step in the right direction, but it's not necessarily the answer that everybody says that it is because there are those yeah. in the public yeah. health um, arena who make out that, you know, if we keep testing and we keep tracing and we keep contacting people, this will be the way out. It, that is the way out for managing a outbreak. We've got to test them for active infection and then... Uh, find their contacts and pull both of them out and carry on doing that, removing people out of circulation by testing for active infection. Mm. And, and the antibody test is, shall we say, after the event, just checking that you have got presence of antibodies. Right. So I wouldn't use antibody tests for control purposes. Okay. If you took one of these tests, and I'm sorry to keep asking all these questions, That's okay. if, if you took one of these tests and you were positive, right, but you, it just said that you had the antibodies, but not... Sorry, that you had, the, had had the disease, but not the antibodies. What does that mean? It means one of two things. One, you probably didn't have the infection. Okay. Or, or two, you have not made enough antibodies. Right. And we hope that we're taking the test at the right time. So uh, it's very important to take it at, after a sufficient number of days have gone by yes because otherwise you're testing too early before the antibodies right. ever appear so if the antibodies don't appear it doesn't necessarily mean um that you're still live or it doesn't necessarily mean that your body will make them because it could be presumably that your body just won't make them it could be yes and we will we will also find that out because <laughs> you ask very good questions yeah thank you so we, we i yeah, find we, this to be, I've, i found myself uh, having to learn about this in, in in a big much more important way than than i thought i ever would yeah i know it's good it's good for the listeners too because for example when we immunize against hepatitis b mm. we often find that some people just do not react to that immunization right and and we give them several vaccines and eventually we say i think Considering we've given you so many vaccinations, um, you, are, you, you are probably immune, although you are showing low level of antibody presence. Yes. And as far as the kind of um, the overall testing situation is concerned, we haven't heard much since they in introduced that um, app in the Isle of Wight, how that's going, whether that is working in any way, shape or form. We're wondering whether that's because we don't know anything yet or whether the government have worked out that it's not a very good idea. <laughs> Yeah, and there is that <laughs> there is that news blackout. We're, we're not hearing about it. Yes. And there are concerns, if I may share with you, which is uh, adaptability and acceptability. Yes. Which is um, people feel that if you are going to collect data centrally, I don't want the government to have my data centrally. I'm not going to use this app. Now, if that happens, then we will have um, low take-up. And if we have low take-up, then that app, Fails. Right. So that's an, that's an issue too, because there are apps that are being developed where the data is not collected centrally, which may have more acceptability by the population. This is a uh, iPhone Google joint venture yes. using this app. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, we, I suppose we'll, we'll, the jury is out on that. We'll just have to wait and see what what comes back, maybe after a month or something like that. But um, um, I suppose uh, the question I was I was I was going to ask you was if if you were tested, um, say positively for this, um, and you are living with somebody who 
uh, has not had a test, would you recommend that they also have a test? I think what, what, what purpose would it fulfill or what were we trying to work out for that purpose, for that other person? Uh, is it to know that they've also been infected and are they in a vulnerable group, that sort of thing? That we, would kind, yeah. work out, we would have to work out criteria because uh, we don't want to use tests unnecessarily from public funds. No, for, of course. Although we do hear quite often, don't we, that the government may have the capacity to do 100,000 tests, but is only maybe doing 70,000. So there is supposedly capacity in the system. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, of course we can do that. The, the, the testing for presence of virus, that's the PCR test, um, has to be demand and supply met. In other words, we do as many as is required rather than telling us we've got capacity for 200,000 or not. Yes. We do that. But at the same time, we need to contact trace the same amount of cases that we identify. That's the key of yes. um, getting, getting on top of this outbreak. And have we, are, are we now doing that? Are you, are we, could you say with any surety that no. we are doing that now? No, 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 not at all. Um, we haven't got our contact tracing um, arrangements in place. And for contact tracing has to happen at the same time as the result. In other words, there is a delay. So I hear my GP colleagues telling me that, you know, I haven't got the uh, PCR test result many days after the event, yeah. five, six, seven days. If you have a delay of five days, that's wrong. So you need the test results as soon as possible. And as soon as you get the result, the other arm has to be activated, the contact tracing arm. And that contact tracing arm goes into operation to find all your contacts now that you've tested positive. Those two are not synchronised as yet and not operational. No, right. And I get occasional uh, complaints from people who say that, you know, my, my elderly relative got a test but the test hasn't come back and it's five days ago. What's the excuse for that? I mean, surely they should be able to turn them around quicker than that. I would think so. And uh, I think this is, again, a case of too much centralization yeah and not only myself many other people have said why are you centralizing operations when there is local skills abilities and intelligence so you know the gps can't order these tests and that would be that is such a shame yeah and then you know because it's centralized you're talking to some distant place rather than to your local person who has a handle on things Yes, quite. And just generally, uh, Dr. Barrett, uh, what, is the, what is your view of how this pandemic is kind of flattening out, how it's going? Because it would seem as though we have on, we're sort of on the downward curve, if you like, of, of infection and we are getting lower numbers as, as time goes by. Um, would you expect that to continue? I was hoping that th that way, that the trend downwards will continue. However, with a high level of background new cases that we've always had. This is about 3,000 new cases. That's quite a lot. And then we lift the shutdown. We may generate more cases. Yeah. Therefore, we may have an increase in number of cases in the next month. Okay. And that would be from what, for, for what reason? Because we've started to recirculate, you see. Uh, there, was a, there was a background level of uh, virus already circulating in the community. And then we started to mingle in that community. And as a result, people will pick up the infection, yeah. generate cases, and then the case numbers will go up. OK. And is that something to be alarmed about? Or should we accept a certain level of that increase? No, no, no. We have to be very alarmed about it because you could generate a huge second spike. Mm. So, so careful watchfulness and, and, and recording of the data and monitoring is very important because, as I say... Uh, we could create a big new pulse in a month's time. What would you say to someone who argued that the first wave and the first peak was not as bad as we thought it was going to be because it didn't really affect too many people under the age of 40? It didn't affect too many people who had no underlying health conditions? I would tell them to have a serious talk with themselves. The United Kingdom has had about 50,000-plus people dead. That is a huge number, and it is not of no consequence. It mm. is very, very serious. Yes. So um, I hope people are taking down historical notes of why the United Kingdom has done so badly. In, you know, we, we, in Europe, we've got the greatest number of deaths. We're only second to America. America has got five times our population. Therefore, 
poor population in the United Kingdom is worse. That yes. is something mm, very painful. Could that be because of the, um, the density of the population? It could be, but um, there are other countries which are also densely packed, like Japan. And they've also got an elder, elderly population in Japan. So I'm not going to wish it away by saying, yeah, but that's because the UK has a densely populated population. I think, let us be truthful, we were underprepared. Yes, I think that's probably true. Dr. Brad Pencalia, thank you very much indeed. Senior clinical lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School. He says uh, that we want to avoid a second peak. He says he expects to see an increase in the numbers of infections because of the fact that the lockdown has been eased. But the trouble is, the lockdown has to be eased because otherwise we will sit in how inside the house forever and a day and nobody will ever go out. Nobody will ever have the courage to say, well, look, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be affected by this. Um, and at, at some point, the balance has to be struck, doesn't it? Want to hear from you on this? 0344 499 1000. Don't forget, we are live streaming on YouTube, uh, on Facebook, and on Twitter as well. This is Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Lots and lots of great tweets coming. I haven't read as many out as I should, but here's one from Joanne. Quite right, Mike. Plenty of Scottish people don't agree with Nicola Sturgeon. People will vote for her at Holyrood for reasons beyond my understanding, but will never vote for Scottish independence. You better get used to it. Well, uh, I think that's entirely correct because my experience of people that live in Scotland uh, is that they would be absolutely uh, unable to get more than 50% of people to vote for independence. It just wouldn't happen. So you can forget that one as well. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Adam Michael Cox because it is just after 12.30 and it's that time of the day when we do our homeschooling feature. So if you haven't done it already, gather your children around the radio or around the television if you're watching us on YouTube or around the Alexa uh, if you happen to be listening to it via that particular device or around your phone because there's an app where you can get it as well uh, of course you can listen to us online so you might have a laptop there's all manner of different ways of learning uh, and this is just one of them but uh, adam michael cox is an expert in phobias because we're going to find out what phobias are uh, and then maybe if you do have a phobia what perhaps you can do about it adam a very good afternoon to you good afternoon so i suppose the first question should be what is a phobia yeah a phobia is a uh, emotional reaction to a trigger a stimulus uh, that causes intense anxiety. Mm. So for many people, they might have a phobia of an animal, like a spider or a mm. dog perhaps, and just seeing or thinking about that thing would do things in their body um, which are symptoms of anxiety. So their heart might beat faster or they might get muscle tension mm. or they might breathe really fast or cry. And it's an unpleasant experience, which is why uh, so many people don't like having phobias. Yes, I mean, I know people who have had panic attacks. I fortunately never have had one, so I don't know what it feels like. And it's when you've never had one, it's hard to imagine how debilitating it can be, right? Totally. And, you know, when I, when I work with people about uh, who have phobias, I try and get a scale of 1 to 10 about how in, intense their anxiety feels. And for me, uh, if it's 9 or 10 out of 10, I would label that as a panic attack because, right. you know, it's such a severe... Uh, unpleasant emotional feeling and people feel like they're going to die when it reaches that level of intensity but some people have milder forms of phobias where they just don't like being around that thing and lots of people might have a fear of kind of uh, clowns for example right. and, and it's not that they're going to have a panic attack but it just makes them feel a bit unnerved just and they a don't bit uneasy yeah mm. i mean we've all had nervousness i suppose where i mean i've certainly had that where you get that kind of tightening of the stomach and you have no appetite you can't really eat anything you can't really settle anywhere you're worried about something which is maybe in, in, happening tomorrow or the next day or something in, in the distance or your relationships messed up and you have this sort of horrible knotted feeling yeah and, and that, that's a very typical a lot of people say that the anxiety starts in their gut mm. and then when their heart beats faster it kind of moves up into their chest but it's something that doesn't happen by choice and and one of the most frustrating things that people with phobias experience is being told by other people that it's harmless it's irrational you know they often already know that but it's happening anyway you know it's really not a choice to feel that way yeah it's interesting i was looking at the front page of the times today and i haven't actually read it but in one of the pieces inside it says how to beat your fogo which is a new thing uh, that's fear of going out because i mean i imagine that people now having been locked down for seven or eight weeks might have a fear of going out yeah totally and and you know fears are created um either from a, a sensitizing event or from 
what we learn from people around us, including the media. And if you've seen nonstop news reports about infections and people dying and things like that, then you might create a, a trigger of going outside equals danger, threat, you know, and therefore you're going to have anxiety around that. So, mm. you know, these things definitely happen. And how does phobias, uh, or how do phobias kind of begin? Does it, is there an event that happens that causes it? Like, for example, if you were scared of spiders, would it be because of some experience you had? Yeah, strangely, the number one reason for people getting a phobia is they learn it from their parents or uh -huh. siblings. That that's so they they learn it from association. Right. Uh, the second number one cause is what's known as a sensitizing event. So something might have happened. So if you were young as a child, and then a dog barks very loudly at you, that might create uh, you know a a feeling that dogs are dangerous, and then you generalize that to all dogs rather than that specific dog. And and that's what makes a phobia a phobia. It's generalized to everything that, that kind of falls in that particular bracket. Okay. So and if you have, a, say, a phobia of flying, um, is there um, something you can do to, to, to fix that? Yeah, so you, you have two main different types of phobias. You have simple phobias where you see the thing or you think about the thing and you feel it, and then you have situational phobias which require an element of thinking um, or evaluation. And a fear of flying is one of those things that people don't necessarily only experience the anxiety when they're on the plane. Even booking the tickets or going to the airport can create that anxiety. Mm. Um, so one of the key things is to focus on what you can control and what you can't control. Um, so you might not be able to control um, what you know the, the the flying element of it, but you can uh, provide distractions. So having games to play, having music, you know things like that. But but generally. With phobias, it's about tackling the root so that you can think or be in that situation and not feel any anxiety. And most people don't realize that there is enough development within psychology and, and therapeutic approaches that these days you can get rid of a phobia in, in less than an hour. Really? Um, and uh, does that work for everyone? Or is, I mean, is there a one-size-fits-all or does it depend on sort of how bad it is? Yeah, it depends on the individual. Um, you know, I, I work with clients and, and get rid of phobias normally in one session. I'm kind of known for that. But okay. sometimes it might be two or three. Um, and, uh, and and the results look magical from the outside. You know, when I do workshops where people have a lifelong fear of spiders, at the end of it, they're holding massive tarantulas. And it just looks, it looks impossible, but it does happen. Right. And what about as a parent, you know, because people are listening to this who are homeschooling their children. How do you make sure that you're not somehow passing phobia onto your kids? I think it's being aware that, you know, children learn. Um, you know, if you think about the, the first language that we all speak, we didn't learn it in a classroom. We learnt it just by being around other people. Um, so actually, um, children are observing. So if you do have a fear of something and there are children around, um, it's definitely worth being aware of that um, so that you don't, um, sh you know, scream or shout or look to panicked around them because you could be accidentally giving them a phobia yes yeah and that's certainly not something that you would that you would wish to do what's the most unusual phobia that you've come across so um i actually worked with a, uh, a champion cage fighter who had a fear of balloons balloons uh, balloons wow. yeah the idea of balloons popping um and uh, you know some people have a similar phobia for fireworks for example loud noises um, and he, he said, to, you know, he said, I've had to keep this a secret my whole life because doing what he was doing, if someone knew that he had a fear of balloons, he could have, that could have been used to, you know, humiliate or embarrass him or, or manipulate him. Right. And, and it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to share a phobia because unfortunately for the people that don't have that phobia, they can play pranks and they, and they think it's funny because right. they don't experience the anxiety like the person that has it. And so he would tell people that he had this phobia, would he? No, he would, he would definitely not tell people right. because he was worried that it would be used against him. But um, effectively, his motive, and, and most people that have phobia simply avoid the thing. Um, so he was avoiding balloons his whole life. But when he had a daughter and she was being invited to birthday parties, he couldn't actually go in with her. And it, it was creating problems for him. And that's normally when people see someone like me where avoidance no longer is an effective strategy and yes. they just want to get rid of the phobia. Because presumably if you're worried about balloons bursting, then you're worried about balloons, period. So if you see a balloon, you're you're going you're gone yeah totally and and it's actually the anticipation that it may pop um more than the actual uh popping itself yeah um and, and did you find out why he had that phobia he you know it's likely to have been a sensitizing event where there was a very loud noise perhaps when he was a, a very young child a balloon pops very close to his ear and it startles uh, and that's how these things normally start with that particular phobia but it, it really doesn't matter where it comes from 
um, I think for most people, they just want it to go away, mm. and, and that's where I can help. We have somebody here who has a phobia of uh, sponges. Yeah, quite often that's that's less about the sponge and more about the holes, um, you know, trypophobia. So, you, you know, where uh, honeycomb, for example, and, and things like that that have patterns of holes right. tend to make people feel really, um, you know, unsettled and mm. then it's not a nice feeling. Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? Well, it's fascinating stuff. Adam, thank you very much indeed. I mean, if you have a phobia and somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that? So I've got a free video that shows people how to get rid of phobias really quickly, and that's on phobiaguru.com. Phobiaguru.com, brilliant stuff. Adam, thank you very much indeed. Adam Michael Cox, if you've got a phobia of any kind, um, I've got a phobia of uh, Keir Starmer. <laughs> I just don't like looking at him. That's all I can say. Uh, this is Talk Radio. <laughs> Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, uh, I'd completely forgotten that we were supposed to be doing something uh, rather interesting at this point in the show, uh, but I've just been reminded of it, of course, uh, by my producer, who always keeps on top of these things, and uh, Lukasz Dinoviak, we're going to speak to now, because he's head of tastings at International Beverage Holdings. And I have in front of me here a rather splendid bottle of Old Pultney, uh, which is a single malt, 12 years old, matured over fine American oak, robust yet smooth, with a delicate hint of sea air is what it says here. So I'm about to make it pop. And then... This is great, isn't it? What a great noise. Uh, Lukash, a very good uh, morning... Oh, afternoon to you, I should say. Hi, good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Did you like the sound effects there as I opened I that? I love the sound effects. Uh, I must say the bottle has a, a particular unique shape. Uh, and part of the charm of it is that that neck... That bulb on the neck actually makes a particular sound as you're pouring the yes. first time out. And, you know, it's also very easy to hold, isn't it? It's quite quite a handy shape for that. It's it's the right bottle to be walking into into the party with, for sure, yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Now, it's it's I'm I'm not a massive expert on whiskey, but I'm, I'm a fan of it. And, and it's quite a sort of, um, I would say, medium colour. It's not too light, not too dark. Correct. It's matured over American oak, so you would expect that sort of... Uh, you know, middle-of-the-road colour. Yes. Uh, colour can be quite deceptive. Uh, you know, a lot of the time we'll see whiskey which is quite light in colour, but it will actually have that sort of bold, big, rich flavour. Yes. Uh, and vice versa. Sometimes whiskies which are quite dark uh, can fall a little bit flat. So I wouldn't take that as an indication of quality. No. And the American oak, um, is, is how significant in terms of how many other types of Scotch whisky are actually um, made that way? I think since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, American oak really reigns supreme. It's the right type of oak for coopering. It gives the right flavour, but also from the sort of, you know, technical spec point of view, it's the right oak for us to use. Also, it's in plentiful supply, so we can uh, get our hands on it uh, once the American distillers typically are done with it. We, in Scotland, we tend to, you know, fill spirit into casks which previously had another spirit or maybe fortified wine in them before. Right. Uh, but we still fill a small proportion of Spanish oak casks in particular mm. and also oak casks from, you know, from other parts of the world. But American oak reigns supreme. OK. And you've been doing some research at International Beverage Holdings on the occasion of International Whiskey Day, which I believe is tomorrow, right? Um, you found, um, unbelievably, that one in ten Brits thought bourbon was Scottish. I mean, that, to me, uh, sounds incredibly ignorant, first of all. A quarter identified American rye as being from Japan. Yes, um, I, I'm not sure exactly where these figures uh, actually came from. Yeah. I don't have them in front of me. Uh, but yes, um, in terms of the, the journey of the cask itself, that, that is very interesting. And we have been sourcing these casks from, uh, from America for, certainly for a very long time. Yes. Now, in the tasting of a whiskey, I'm just, as we speak, sort of running... I'm afraid I have to confess we only have paper cups in the office at the moment. We're not allowed to have any glass oh. because of the fact that the, you know, the, the dishwashers can't wash them clean enough from the coronavirus. So we're using right. paper cups. However, uh, I'm just running it sort of around in a little circle underneath my nose to smell it. And it's got a very nice smell. It's not too... It doesn't smell too harsh to me. Um, so should I take a little sip of it? Absolutely. Once you're done nosing, you know, sipping is the next step. Right. We always say you get most of your information from nosing uh, that spirit. So 90% of the information that your brain is going to get about, about the overall aroma and flavour spectrum will come from your nose rather than your mouth. Mm. Uh, so nosing, nosing is by far uh, the most important bit. And unfortunately, uh, a glass plays an important role in that, uh, in that process. So it's at home, you know, if you have the right whiskey glass, 
use it. If you don't, it's really worth investing in a decent tulip-shaped glass. Yes, I've got one at home. Don't worry, I'll be getting stuck in later. Um, but as far as the um, the tasting goes, I've often been told that it's good to, to try and, and wash it sort of around your mouth as well. Correct. Mm. I think, um, you know, spirits being you know a little bit harsher than maybe sort of wine or what we're used to drinking on a sort of more regular basis, uh, for a lot of us, it, you know, it gives that this slight burn, it gives that this slight tingling, slight prickle. And I think people are slightly scared of it, but you should certainly try and hold it in your mouth maybe a little bit longer than you yes. think it's comfortable. Just to, just to really rinse your mouth, try and aerate it a little bit like you would with red wine, um, and that will really pay uh, the dividends back in terms of uh, that flavour delivery, in terms of opening up that, okay. that taste. Do you know, I've got, um, you know those little um, gizmos that you can get for aerating red wine? That you pour it through and it sort of um, it somehow yes. oxidizes it. Could you do that with whiskey as well? I think you could. You could if you wanted to. Yeah. I think the, the problem is if you're going to store your whiskey for an extended period of time, you actually don't want to aerate it. Right. Um, over a longer period of time, oxygen is obviously not not your friend. Right. Um, so I would say um, do it a dram at a time. So mm. you know, pour yourself uh, pour yourself a nice dram into your into your glass and then sort of nurture it a little bit, put some air through it, go and swirl it in the glass, make that sort of your, you know, your second nature, your habit. So if you're having people over, if you're sharing a couple of drums, maybe you're watching film with your better half, um, you know, have that habit of swirling the whiskey in your glass, and that will really help to open okay. up the aroma and the flavour. And as far as the, um, uh, the, the drinking of it is concerned, are you a purist when it comes to, to drinking malt? Uh, would you put a little bit of water in it, a little bit of ice maybe? Yeah, no, absolutely not, not a purist. When we do work, you know, at the company, at the business, in the lab, into the tasting environment, you know, we have to be purists about it because there's a scientific method to it. So we will, we will tend to add water, we'll tend to cut um, the strength of those samples down to open up the aroma and it has to be done in a consistent way. Now, when it comes to drinking at home, there is no rule. Uh, we have been enjoying, um, you know, obviously quite the decent weather, uh, even here in Scotland uh, these past, <laughs> past few weeks. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've been making highballs. Uh, I've been making, you know, uh, I've been adding soda water and yes. a lemon twist to my whiskey. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with it. And, and Scotch whiskey is one of the most versatile drinks out yes. there. Uh, so you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be sort of uh, maybe too snobbish about it. Mm. I'm really liking this. It's quite smooth. You know, some of uh, some malts are, are quite harsh, but this one is lovely. Thank you, thank you. It's, it's tw matured for 12 years. You know, delivered at 40%, so it's ready to drink. It's ready to enjoy as that sort of room temperature dram. It doesn't actually want ice. This one doesn't want water. And it gives you, as you said, it gives you that delicate sweetness, that softness. It gives you that sort of silky base. It has quite a lot of body to it, so it will cling to the palate in a particular way. Uh, but then you've got that beautiful sort of oily citrus top. It's quite perfumed at the top. And the hallmark of Old Pulteney, they think, you know, wake me up in the middle of the night and give me a dram of this. And I know it's Old Pulteney because it has that whiff of mm. sea air. It just takes on a little bit of that North Sea um, sort of breeze, that sort of crispness uh, as, it, as it matures uh, in Wick on Caithness Coast, which is all the way up north in Scotland. Yes, because there are different regional sort of differences, aren't there? You know, like Jura and, and, and various other places. Correct. And, um, you know, terroir doesn't factor into it in quite the same way as you would expect from wine. And mm. um, the soil or maybe sort of the exposure, that, that doesn't necessarily inform the spirit straight away. But over the years, over, you know, long maturation periods, the place will actually affect the spirit. With malt whiskey in particular, I think the first thing that, that, that really matters is the people, is, is how uh, they do things, how the sort of historic and social context of the place has informed the process. Mm. That's something which will play that sort of, you know, foremost role. But certainly the place where the spirit matures uh, will give you that final flourish. So it's really worth finding out about your distillery, your favourite malt, where is it located, and which particular factors are shaping that flavour. Yes. And, I mean, I, my father was from Scotland, and he had a friend who used to swear by uh, put, dropping a pipette of water, literally a drop of water into it, to kind of free yes. up the flavour. What do you make of that? We, we, do, we do recommend that. I think particularly when you're approaching a spirit for the first time, if, you know, if you're looking to learn about it, um, there is obviously a risk of overwatering it. Uh, we, we would recommend adding water if, you, if you're looking to learn. Um, water tends to open up the aroma spectrum. It will give you, you know, a lot more of the baseline, so it will give you a lot more sweetness. But actually, arguably, it helps to open up the top end a little bit mm. also. So a, a drop of water, and actually, I wouldn't disagree with the pipette method, 
Uh, because it's easy to overwater. It's easy to add too much. Yes. And then actually, in turn, you're drowning your spirit and you're locking, you're locking the flavour and aroma in. So adding a drop at the time, you know, the trick at home, if you don't have a pipette, is to use a straw. If you have a drinking straw, yes. you know, you can use that. You can sort of, uh, you know, block one end with your finger and, and just lift, lift literally a drop out of a glass of water. You can also use a teaspoon to do that. But it's, it's quite important not to, not to add too much. So pipette is fine. Mm, excellent stuff. Well, Lucas, thank you very much indeed. Lucas uh, Dinoviak uh, talking to us from the uh, International Beverage Holdings Company. A little tasting there of old Pulkney whiskey. Very nice. International Whiskey Day tomorrow. Uh, we're going back to Edinburgh now uh, because Audrey is there, wants to have a word. Hello, Audrey. Hello, Mike. How, um, are, good how are you? you again. Hi, I'm fine, thanks. Um, I just wanted to really pick up on a couple of points yes. about the coronavirus. Mm. What else? <laughs> yes. And uh, the, the first thing really was about the gentleman, the doctor that you had on talking about uh, our unpreparedness. Yes. Which I accept, yes, but... I think the the world in general is pretty unprepared. Yes. But Asia, probably much more better prepared because they've lived through SARS and MERS. And I think psychologically, as well as practically, the people there are much more able to go into lockdown, to think about wearing masks. It's a different culture, different society anyway. Yes, yes. But also, the, the, they've experienced epidemics. Yes. Um, well, they all seem to um, come from that part of the world, don't they? Well, yes. I mean, that's, you know, it can't, be, can't the, be a coincidence, yes. can it? That's right. That's the common denominator. Mm. Um, and I think it's very, it's a bit early to, to tell, really, um, how going to, countries are going to come out of this. But I don't think it should be a competition. No, I um, agree with you. And also, it's not surprising that, yeah. that everybody was so unprepared because in January, the World Health Organisation told us that it couldn't even be passed from human to human. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and there's so much politics going on with this, as you well mm. know. Mm. But the, the other point is, as well, is I was saying to your researcher about um, recording of COVID-19. And I know personally of two people, and you've probably had this on your show already, but certainly my own lived experience, two people, uh, one of whom went into hospital on Friday, a Friday yeah. uh, with no COVID symptoms at all, um, he was tested on the on the um, Monday twice. Uh, both c- tests came back negative. Right. He died very early on the Tuesday morning. Really? And COVID-19 was put on his death certificate. And what, yet, what do you think he died from then? I have no idea. Right. But I don't think it was COVID. Right. Um, because he had, or, or, I mean, it beggars belief because when his wife went up, she was allowed to go in and see him in his final hours. Yeah. Um, wasn't given any protective equipment, wasn't told she had to self-isolate, mm. to call his clothes home. Um, I, I don't know. And then I know another, an elderly gentleman who um, died in care. And again, COVID-19 was put on his death certificate, but he was never tested. Right. Both my parents died of pneumonia in care homes, which is the number one cause of mm. death for elderly I'm sure now they would be recorded as COVID. I'm sure. This is why the comparison of numbers really isn't isn't worth it's doing, in my view. You know, it really is meaningless. Because, one, you've got that problem. You've then got the second problem of how we're counting numbers that other countries aren't counting, so thereby making it look right. worse. And so yeah. I'm, I'm not at all sure that we should even be doing it. This is why I was saying the other day, I think we'd do away with these media briefings, which every day starts with the number of dead. Absolutely. You know, it's crazy. And, and, and as you started looking at the number of people that are recovering. But, of course, the media, as we have it, as you well know, Mike, mm. would then twist that into massive cover-up. And, yes, probably. And, you know, I mean, I live in Scotland. Uh, we nippy, as I call her, Sturgeon. <laughs> um, you know, she has put us into lockdown, apparently, for another three weeks. Um, it's all politics with her. She'll do the opposite of Westminster. But yet... People are going about here, tradesmen are working. We are not in lockdown, and no. she knows it. Of course we're not. We haven't been, ever, really. Certainly not in this part of the world. But listen, great call, Audrey. Thank you very much indeed. How apt to end with somebody from Scotland, because I've got this Scotch whisky now here, uh, which I shall have to uh, sip for the next uh, half an hour or so uh, while we plan what we're going to do tomorrow. Um, we're going to do another radio show tomorrow. It starts at 10 o'clock. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.